0: think former president trump was able to rise into power and win the presidency even though he did not win the popular vote was that he was a very effective marketer communicator that helped to tap into and stoke a huge degree of white anxiety and grievance white anxiety about the demographic shifts that are taking place in this country and let's be crystal clear so many of the efforts to suppress the sacred right to vote are a direct confrontation to trying to prevent Demographic change from changing our democracy to to stall that change, but they are also he was very effective in through kind of the MAGA narrative the make America great again narrative used as a dog whistle to trigger a lot of fear and anxiety and even hatred that you know essentially became a message of we need to make and keep America white and so you can't overcome a pernicious and negative narrative without having a more hopeful and transformational narrative. And to me, that narrative is the narrative of the beloved community. Dr. King described it as a commitment to agape love, as we heard earlier, but also a commitment to nonviolence, to equality, to so many of the shared values we have. And I wrote a book kind of focused on this, trying to unpack what the beloved community means for us today, and I'll end with this. My most succinct definition is building a society, building a nation where neither punishment nor privilege is viciously attached to race to ethnicity, to gender, to sexual orientation, to age, to religion, and building a country where everyone is valued equally, everyone is respected. Our diversity is seen as a strength and not a threat, and everyone can thrive. Now, I actually believe that is a vision that the vast, vast majority of Americans would agree to. But we don't hear it nearly enough from politicians. And I actually think it's not going to come from politics. It's got to come from civil society. And the church should be at the forefront of that and not at the back.
1: And then, you know, one thing that comes to my there are multiple speeches and writings of Kings that we don't hear of. I want to commend to you all a speech he gave called the world house, which is a vision for how we can live together in this nation and globally. Essentially, he's arguing that technology and travel and other things, and, and bring, I see your phones, look up Martin King World House, read it. His argument is we live in one world house and that we must care for one another. That there is abundance. He would have been totally in the microphones about the casino capitalism that we have today that extracts value and does not honor labor. He would have been on the front lines around reparations. One of his most powerful speeches is where he reminds us that in the Homestead Act, Europeans, white folks were given the West, given Thousands of acres and given land-grant institutions to learn how to make the soil profitable and the people that had worked for free got nothing. Or in the words of the great philosopher Christopher Wallace, also known as Biggie Smalls, they got Nathan. Not a thing. And so he would have been on the front line. And the problem with making him a secular saint, it it bothers me. We roll him out once a year to be a prophet for colorblindness and American exceptionalism. And that is not who he was. Like Jesus, as Reverend Adams said, Jesus was not given a bouquet and balloons in Jerusalem. And Martin King was not given a bouquet and balloons in Memphis. In 1963, one of the leaders of the FBI, after the speech that was made here, said the king is the most dangerous Negro in America, the most dangerous Negro in America. And I believe the holiday is one of the things about it. And you all may think I'm a conspiracy theorist, but I'm not. The purpose is to defang him. And in the words of Cornel West, it is the Santa Clausification of Martin Luther King. He was dangerous. In this sense, the FBI was right. Very, very briefly. I just
2: want to hear just in a sentence or two from each of you, because when we talk about Dr. King, we talk about him as a solitary figure. And he was not. He was not. So when we, I I can't even say reimagine, but when we try to reframe the day, it's part of, better understanding the radical nature of his work, understanding the radical people who were around him. Reverend Taylor, really briefly.
0: Well, I always felt, my parents instilled this in me, that Generation X, which I'm, a- I'm aging myself here, I think we might be in the same generation, inherited the unfinished business of the civil rights movement. But that baton keeps getting passed on, needs to be keep, keep, keep getting passed on, so that now my kids are going to have to continue this struggle and may really enable us to, to get much closer to this inclusive, just, multiracial democracy that uh, embodies the beloved community. So, Jen, uh, Anna Malika
1: Tubbs has a book about the mothers of the civil rights movement. When you see King, you must see his mother, Alberta Williams King, who before she married his father, was marching and was boycotting in Atlanta. She and her family were some of the early members of the NAACP in Atlanta. And Martin King inherited through his mother. He said his mother taught him about slavery and economics. His mother radicalized him very much like James Baldwin's mother and Malcolm's mother radicalized him. So we must understand that King existed in an ecosystem His father, his grandfather's maternally, he did not arise ex nihilo and start doing what he did. He was a part of a tradition, and you're exactly right. And we must call the names of Prathia Hall and Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer and others who were in that constellation, and so thank you for that.
2: Pastor Lamar, Reverend Taylor, thank you so much. That's William H. Lamar IV, pastor of the Metropolitan African Methodist Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C., and the Reverend Adam Taylor, president of Sojourners. They joined us on stage at the MLK Memorial Library in D.C. for our salute to MLK, the struggle for democracy and the vote. Up next on this special program, we talk about who gets to vote. In a speech in May 1957, Dr. King said, quote, The denial of this sacred right is a tragic betrayal of the highest mandates of our democratic tradition. So, where does that fight stand now, more than sixty years later? I'm Jen White. This is One A.
3: Neuroscientist Wendy Suzuki basically
2: lived
4: at her lab. I just felt really, really bad. So she started working out, which improved more than just her muscles. My focus was working better. And that
2: made me say, what's going on here? Wendy's discovery has kept her active ever since. New ideas to help you keep your resolutions. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from
3: NPR. Wednesday afternoon at 2 on Radio Catskill.
5: I'm Jason Tuga, host of The Mixtape. Every Friday night, it's my goal to bring WJFF listeners great music. Music from all over the world. Stuff that's been lost in the archives and needs to be heard. Classics you already knew you loved. And new stuff from established and emerging artists. All right here on The Mixtape, WJFF Radio Catskill.
6: Friday night at 7 on Radio Catskill. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR.
2: This is 1A. Today we have a special hour. We're airing highlights from an event recorded here in Washington, D.C. at the MLK Memorial Library. Our theme, A Salute to MLK, the Struggle for Democracy and the Vote. We end with a number of perspectives from those who've made both a close study of Dr. King and those who've borne witness to the backlash to transformative change born out of the civil rights movement and more recent demographic shifts in our country. On stage, Cheryl Cashin, law professor at Georgetown Law Center. She told us the results from last November should encourage us about the future of our democracy, albeit with a big caveat. A majority of the people in this country believe in in Dr. King's vision of a radically inclusive, multiracial democracy. But there is an idea of white supremacy, white nationalism, that they were fighting back then that still has enthusiasts. And so I think the election of the midterms Many people sighed a breath of relief, you know, that it seemed as if a majority of people believe in that vision, but we have to keep fighting for it, and it is fragile. That's Cheryl Cashin, law professor at Georgetown Law Center. But was her optimism something shared by my next three guests? We're about to hear from writer Rich Benjamin. He's a fellow at Princeton University. Also on stage, Robert Burt, an assistant professor of history and government at Bowie State University and the director of the Karsh Center for Law and Democracy at the University of Virginia, distinguished professor of law Bertral Ross. In their last conversation, Dr. King shared the following with famed artist and activist Harry Belafonte. I've come upon something that disturbs me deeply, he said. We have fought hard and long for integration, as I believe we should have, and I know that we will win. But I come to believe we're integrating into a burning house. And so with these gentlemen, I want to explore King's burning house metaphor, but with specific attention to the fragility of our democracy, white backlash as a response to black progress, and the repercussions of SCOTUS voting rights decisions. So, Professor Burt, the basement, if we, if we look at that as the foundation of this country, and as we said, it contains a fragile <laughs> democracy, how did Dr. King think about equality as an or the essential element of a
3: successful democracy? Well, you can't have democracy without equality, and you also can't have freedom without equality. But there's something else that's going on here that I think we need to look at. And that is that uh, if I understand Dr. King correctly, uh, his view is that, uh, yes, the things we're fighting for, at least in terms of constitutional rights, are essential. Uh, and let's not understate that. But let's not overstate it either. And That is to say, winning certain legal rights are important, but they're not enough. Uh, you can have freedom in a very abstract sense, but lack the concrete forces, he puts it somewhere in his last book, to make human liberation concrete, to make it actual. And this is something I want to be concerned about because, you see, uh, I think Dr. King understood. And in the past 50 years, we're coming more and more by experience, to understand. That simply having more black faces in higher places doesn't change the nature of the game. A burning house is a burning house. And having Negroes who are directing it doesn't make it any more just.
2: I, I want to so, get into the economic aspect of this in a minute. But, Rich, I, I want us to reflect on the recent presidential elections and the January 6th uh, attack on, on, Cong- on uh, Congress. And, and what does that say to you about the current state of our democracy?
7: The only silver lining of January 6th is it punctured this air of white racial innocence where finally people see what is what. The extent to which a faction of this country, which is not small, is willing to disrupt the democratic process in fear of all kinds of things. The policy outcomes that come with democracy paid sick care, a minimum wage, what it really means to have a prosperous multiracial democracy. And at least it laid out, as we see this insurrection on social media, as we see it on television, it laid out what the other side feels are the stakes involved. And so at least now we know what's what in terms of what people are willing to do to stop what they see as a future that would really be democratic.
2: Well in your sociological work, Rich, you you write about white backlash to black progress. Yeah. But is there is there something unique about what we're seeing right now?
7: Yes. So Jen, I spent two years traveling to the fastest growing whitest communities in this country and I embedded myself there. And what I began to see is a backlash that's based on demographics, a backlash that's based on a fear of perceived declining resources. And some of those resources, when we look at the climate, when we look at finances, are indeed real. And what we see is, you know, people realizing we're no longer in a post-racial moment. And so they're taking sides one way or the other. And, you know, we've seen historically when you have black progress in terms of the civil rights movement, what happened. But now the backlash, especially after Obama's presidency, especially after more people of color, more LGBT people being elected to Congress, uh, this backlash showing its face.
2: Professor Ross, if we, if we talk about the repercussions of the recent Supreme Court decisions on on voting rights, how do you connect that to the House (laughs) Dr. King warned about?
5: Yeah. um, One thing to note about Dr. King is that he never saw the Supreme Court as a savior. The progressive left um, has seen the Supreme Court as a savior um, in the current and in the past, and we had a blip in history between the 50s and the 60s in which the Supreme Court was more favorable than it had been in the past. But that's against a backdrop of a Supreme Court that has been quite resistant to the protection of the rights of marginalized communities. So he saw the Supreme Court as a tool, as a tool to be used to mobilize and to protect the people, to be seen as a – to require that those in government – act according to their responsibilities. But he did not see the Supreme Court as an institution that's going to protect the House from burning down. The only way the protection of the House from burning down is going to happen is through the mobilization of the people, and most importantly, the mobilization of the marginalized. So when you think of voting rights... He didn't think of Supreme Court decisions that took place in the 1960s as a means for protection of voting rights. He saw and he recognized that you had to get into these communities and, and mobilize them to action to act against state power, which was quite resistant to them exercising any sort of power that would undercut the, the white supremacist system. And so when you think about sort of the court and its relationship to the house burning down, the court was, again, a tool but not a savior.
2: Well, that takes us to this question we got um, from audience member, Dr. Enid Legace. I hope I said your name correctly. It's a constitutional question, and I'll direct this to you, Professor Ross. Given the challenges to protecting voting rights in our democracy, what new measures should be conceived and implemented to ensure their survival?
5: So I think that it's important to focus our gaze away from the traditional voter suppression that we've been focused on. And this might seem paradoxical, controversial even. We've been so focused on these barriers to voting, these tangible barriers of voting that have been put up by different states such as voter ID laws and other ways to suppress minority votes. And what we've seen in the actions in places like Georgia, the actions of Stacey Abrams, who lost two gubernatorial elections but won three senatorial elections. And also won for Georgia the rebirth of democracy. What we see in her efforts is the actions of Dr. King, in which he saw the most important part of ensuring power is by getting people to the polls. And so the work that we've seen in places like Georgia has been focused on going into Communities who have not participated in the political process before and encouraging them and mobilizing them and informing them and, and, and helping them get to the polls. And so when you think about measures that sh- that need to be put in place to protect and advance our democracy, they have to be focused on those particular efforts. We need to provide the incentives and the protection of those actions. The bigger threats to democracy are not voter ID laws. They are laws that are designed to limit the ability of getting souls to the polls, for example, there are efforts that are designed to, to limit the opportunities of, of people to reach out and connect to voters in their homes. They are measures that are set forth in apartment complexes that don't allow canvassers to come in to speak to the voters that are renting um, apartments in those buildings. If you don't reach and connect to those individuals and you don't bring them out to the polls, then democracy is going to suffer. It's going to suffer to their detriment, to their detriment as individuals who, who, who suffer economically and as a result suffer politically. I hear from
2: people so often questioning why we're in this particular moment in the country. So I'd love to hear from each of you very briefly, if the house is on fire, what's feeding the flames right now? Um, And I'd like to hear from you first, Rich.
7: What's feeding the flames is a party that is unwilling to acknowledge and put down all the nonsense that Donald Trump is up to. When you have half the country that's unwilling to acknowledge this, that's partly what's feeding the flames of this. But what's also uh, feeding the flames is a party also that will not put policy forward. So in the absence of a willingness to govern, in the absence of policy itself, you have to garner and drum up and gin up fear, boogeymen, and all of this. And so they don't want the government to function. And so when you have half a country that doesn't want the government to function or doesn't want to put policy or doesn't even want to govern, there's no substantive policy differences among them. I think that doesn't help the democracy at all. And we saw that most vividly in this last week. I mean, how is a country going to govern itself when you had that kind of clown car on the floor of a burning house? So I, I think those are critical. And finally, I think it's the white nationalism that's coming up. That's a brew of religion. It's a brew of fear of demographic change. And it's a brew of misogyny all coming in a perfect storm.
2: Professor Burt, briefly from you, what do you think feeds the flames today?
7: I think that um, what
3: happens when at uh, uh, least certain segments of um, frivolous capitalists feel threatened, they push back in certain ways. Uh, at times, I wonder well, you have two political parties. One is virtually not even conservative, it's pretty much turned into a fascist party. Uh, the other is it's also a kind of corporate political party opportunistic in a way. And you have you have a reemergence of new movements and they want to push back and they want to stop that, especially on the right. But maybe also to some extent on the so-called left and the establishment. Right. They don't want things going too far. The right is very aggressive about it. And that's what we see. But I think what happens is that uh, they want to stop if they ca- if they cannot reverse progressive achievements that have happened, for example, when I was growing up. And as I've, I think I've tried to suggest before, if we don't – I mean, reality doesn't stand still. If we don't move forward, we're bound to eventually go backward, right? And there are people who want to push it. But Donald Trump is just an obvious one Right. Very obvious. Some maybe just want to obstruct it a little bit. They don't want to reverse it. They want to hold it, hold it where it is. But it can't stay where it is. It's got to either go forward, expanding democracy, uh, expanding beyond the limits of, of race and, and class divisions and,
5: and, and inequalities, or
3: it's going to go backward. We have to push forward.
2: Professor Ross, I, I want to hear your thoughts as well.
5: So I would say um, and I agree with both of what's been said so far, but I would also add the failure to fully consider and account for the least amongst us. That failure to fully account and consider the least amongst us in a hyper-capitalist society with a limited social safety net leads people to be rather desperate, desperate for some sort of hero. And sometimes they get misdirected into identifying heroes that are the villains. And if we want to think about the source of the recruitment towards um, aristocratic or not um, authoritarian leadership we have to think about the vulnerability of our democracy to the fact that there are many people in our society that are completely marginalized and completely forgotten and they are seeking a way to be remembered and the way that they many sought to be remembered is a way that threaten all of us i'll go back to the work of Stacey abrams I see hope in making those connections directly with the people, with talking to them, engaging them, hearing them, listening, and reflecting their voices and the actions that are made by the people in power. If we can replicate and build off of that work, which is the legacy of Dr. King, I think that that gives us hope in terms of the future of our democracy, a democracy that's truly egalitarian, not simply along racial lines, but also along class lines as well.
2: Rich Benjamin, Professor Bertral Ross, Professor Robert Burt, thank you so much for your time. We've been listening to writer Rich Benjamin, also Robert Burt an assistant professor of history and government at Bowie State University, and the director of the Karsh Center for Law and Democracy at the University of Virginia, distinguished professor of law Bertral Ross. And that is our salute to MLK, the struggle for democracy and the vote. Our special thanks to the MLK Memorial Library in downtown D.C. for hosting us, and to all our guests who joined us on stage for what turned out to be a very special event. Today's executive producers were Maxie Jackson and Tom Hudson, with help from Anna Casey, Yanlin Zhang, and Allie Dickman. Rashad Young, Mike Kidd, and Rob Bertrand were our sound engineers. And from the library, we're indebted to Ryan Williams, Lisa Warwick, and Natalie Campbell, and to all those who showed up to be part of such a wonderful audience. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.
6: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com.
2: Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Women's Health Center in Honesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. Physicians and certified midwives who deliver. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center. WMH.org From Rourke Law, Liberty, New York, a general law practice serving the Catskills and Delaware River Valley with an emphasis on estate planning, estate administration, elder law, and real property matters. RourkeLaw.com
6: WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello
4: Thank you, Dr. King. I've been touched by history. As a child of the civil rights era, I've lived the sting of current events. A journalist, I've chronicled our collective path for 30 years. A historian, I've put those events into perspective, into context of time and journeys and destinies, and known the power of history to cleanse and to heal. I was 10 when I met Dr. King at New York's Riverside Church. Because my aunt was a member of Riverside's professional choir, I had a front row seat when Dr. King spoke there, newly returned from the wars of Montgomery. Rosa Parks had just kept her historic seat, and a battalion of everyday people had risen to the occasion by taking to their feet. With that, they began and sustained the 385-day boycott that would launch the modern civil rights era, the fight for human rights in America that persists to this day i met dr king on the receiving line at riverside and what are you doing for our people he said i told him my cousin and i and two others had desegregated new york city schools he told me that what i was doing was important he then lifted my awestruck chin and called me pretty Growing up a child of the integration generation in those days when pretty and important were about as good as a Negro girl could ever hope to feel, you could say I was raised by Dr. King. The next day, as my mother brushed my hair for school, I saw a different me in the mirror. At eight years old, northern white parents had spat on me and torn my clothes for trespassing what they saw as turf, and I saw as school now touched by king i felt cleansed i was a child raised yes by dr king his words liberated me and made me feel what every person man woman child wants to feel validated heard understood That brief act of caring, of generosity, that charge that Dr. King gave a 10-year-old girl is the gift of spirit I share with my audiences everywhere I go. In this life, said my grandmother, all things are one. The gifts we are given are gifts for the common good. We must walk the walk, talk the talk, live the life. In this world, too, as my grandfather would say, let no one contaminate your mind. I'm
3: Janice Adams.